You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. Well, welcome to Gateway. Uh, <laughs> this, is the full, this is the full range of it, folks. Like, this is... This is um, like I, the statements of uh, like welcome to church. No, like we are the church. Um, so thank you. Um, well, if this is your first here, your first week here with us, or the first time here in a long time, welcome. Uh, to catch you on up uh, over these next number of months and here for the past few weeks, we have been in and will be in the gospel according to Mark. And if you can believe it, we're going to be in this little section, uh, chapters 1 through 8, where we're asking this question along with Mark, who is Jesus? And, and we're going to be doing this well into the spring, asking this, this question. And, you know, just this past week, Mark, he plunged us kind of headlong into this question by way of this encounter with John the Baptist. And now, if, if you can recall, and if you can't, let me just paint this picture of who John the Baptist is. He is the forerunner, or perhaps you know him by like his prophetic title, the voice crying in the wilderness, which is like a great AKA. Uh, either way, uh, he is the one, he's the one preparing the way for God's agent of salvation. And John does this in kind of an unexpected way. Uh, he does so by calling the nation, the nation of Israel, to come out and collectively confess their sins. So the very same thing that we entered into in our, in our liturgy. John's calling his people to turn with this, uh, this confession of sins and, and thereby demonstrate solidarity with God through this confession. And he would ask them to go through the waters of baptism. That would mark them out as, as these people of renewal. And, and if you want to hear more about that, we, we talked about it last week. Just go on the podcast and check this out. But uh, to help us get into the frame, uh, there's going to be a map that comes on the screen behind me. And I, I just want you to recall the geography. So John, he, he's down by that bigger body of water, the Dead Sea, kind of on the, like the northwestish side. And that's where the River Jordan will flow into that. And so John is out in the wilderness, and he's calling people from Judea and Jerusalem, which is the home of the temple, and therefore, it's, it's like the, the hot spot of God's personal presence. It's the locus point of his presence. He's calling the nation from there into the wilderness. And for hundreds of years, in, in like the mental furniture of the Hebrew people, Jerusalem and, and the temple that sets in Jerusalem, it, it would be this place of reconciliation. Like the temple itself would be marked by holiness and the city would be marked by the holiness of the temple. And yet, something is blocking. Something's blocking God's movement towards his people. Like, uh, there's, it's, it's as though God's presence isn't really there. They're still doing the routine. They're still bringing sacrifices and everything. But John comes on the scene, and he, he says that that thing, that blockage is sin. And surprisingly, uh, according to John, that place of, of reconciliation, it's on the move. And, it, and John's not going to locate that place of reconciliation in himself or even in his ministry, but he's going to make this claim that it, it's in one mightier than himself. And he's going to say the mightier one who's going to come, and, and yes, there's going to be a um, confession of sins, and yes, there's going to be this baptism of repentance, but there's more, that there's going to be this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so John's call is really a call to be the rightly related people to God. And since that's not happening in the temple, 
that John is saying that renewal must come a different way. It, it must be marked out in a new way. And that's the confession of sins. It's this baptism, this turning of repentance. And soon enough, through the very empowering presence of God's spirit. And so Mark, he puts all of this in front of us. This is what precedes our teaching text today. And if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 1. And then we, we read this in Mark chapter 1, verse 9. And this is what it says. In those days, Jesus came up. Excuse me. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just, just this simple placement, this is like, as you're reading through John, he's, he's like really economic in how he writes his gospel. And so as being economic, he's going to, all of the details matter. And so by placing Jesus immediately after John's message, Mark is saying, this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one. He's the one who's going to fully immerse God's people in God's presence. And like, I don't know what the, the heading of these little verses are in your Bible. Uh, in mine, it says it's the baptism of Jesus. And that surely is a significant thing. It is a significant thing that Jesus is, is taking on the marker of, of being these renewed people. But it's not the main thing. It's, it's not the most significant thing in this passage. You see, if I could... And I'm going to, uh, let me offer an alternative heading that, that's kind of, it's going to guide our hearts and I think our imaginations into this little passage. And so here's, here's the alternative heading. Identity is access. In fact, this is really going to be the heart of what we're pursuing this morning. Uh, that speci and specifically looking at how the Spirit will define and helps define our identity before the Father and in the Son. But before we like move on into the remainder of our teaching um, and how it is really that the Spirit helps to define our identity in, before the Father, uh, I'm just going to ask uh, once more that God's Spirit, by God's Word, would, would lead us into all truth, who is Jesus. Um, so, so just as a, as a posture of prayer, um, if you would, you, you could open up your hands, no obligation. Um, but let, let, let's pray. God, we submit that uh, there is... There's no human words that will take place today. No, no, no stirring songs, no laying on of hands that will like turn our hearts toward you. But it is you by the power of your word and your spirit. This has been another last week talking about the baptism of the Spirit. God, I would just, I would ask if there's fear, if there is discomfort in that, I, I would just pray that you would dispel that fear, that you would make space in our hearts to hear what it is that you say to us and over us in the Son. And so God, would, would you guide my words? Would you guide me as we hope to encounter you through your word? And it is in the strong and saving name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. So you may be wondering why it is in a passage that starts out with the baptism of Jesus. I'm going to like focus in on the Spirit. Well, uh, 
really so often in this account, what you get is you get these kind of polarities. You get uh, an approach to this passage that is going to be really Bible and theology heavy. And so it's going to focus in on the doctrine of the Trinity. It's going to say, this is one of the examples where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all present and so, and so you're going to get really this deep dive into here, the deep Bible and theology. Or on the other side, you'll get this, uh, this focus on experiential, like the manifestation of the Spirit and, and God's Spirit coming on Jesus like a dove. But rarely do you get the two of them together. And so I'm going I'm to endeavor to do this thing with us this morning is that we would see that these, these two things are, are, are actually not that separate, that they come together. And in Jesus' own ministry, it is the Spirit who leads in his life. In our life, it's, it's the same. And it's the same Spirit who leads us into all truth, who is Jesus himself. And so, when we say things like we want more of the Spirit, around here, we're not saying like no to robust theology. I am all for robust theology. But we're also not saying that we just want more power or more experiences or some sort of divine energy as though the spirit was a something that we could control. See, that would be a category mistake because the spirit of God is not a something. He's a someone, not under like the purview of our control. And so when we ask for more of the spirit, church, we, we are, it's like when you ask a friend for more of their time. It's personal. It's interpersonal even. You're asking for more intimacy, more, more time, more connection. And ultimately what you want is you want that relationship to grow. And so when we ask for more of the Spirit, that's, that's precisely where our request lies. It's this request for more of the person of God. So we want both. We want Spirit and truth. And so this morning... This is why, as we focus on identity, I just want us to see how crucial the Holy Spirit's role is in forming our identity. Like how we see and imagine ourselves in the world. Because this is how Jesus' ministry began. Hearing who he was from God by the power of the Spirit. And you know, like as a, as a minister, as, as a pastor, I get this really unique vantage point uh, into the lives of you all, uh, but even just like strangers. The other day I was writing a message and we work in a, we have a co-working space that we have some office in and I'm like sitting on the couch and I'm sending all of the appropriate signals except for one. I have a book out, I'm typing, but I don't have headphones in. And one of the gals who sits adjacent to me, she like comes over and she finishes a call and then she's like lingering. And I noticed the lingering and uh, she goes, so, uh, so you're writing a sermon? Because she now knows I'm a pastor, and I said, well, yeah. So how does that work? <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I do study in the text and this and this. And she goes, oh, well, what are you working on now? <laughs> I'm just like, what? So, so you just, like, you have these moments. It could be people in your church. They could just be people that are, like, in the office, and they start. It's like I might as well be wearing a collar in that moment, which I'm, like, I'm not opposed to that, but... Um, at least it would be clear what was happening in that moment. See, my, my point is, is that I get this unique vantage point. And so I get to hear and I get to be a part of people's stories in this way, like in the hard things and in the beautiful things. Um, and I don't think I would be alone in this assessment. And a lot of us in this room have been in ministry, vocational ministry, in fact. And so um, I, I don't think I'd be alone in saying that most of our misery and most of the anxiety that we encounter in life, it comes from trying to prove ourselves in the world. And deep down, 
male, female, old, young, a person of color, Caucasian, whoever you may be, we are all striving to prove that we are enough, to, to prove that, that we are worthy of love. And this is, there's a tension and kind of a paradox here because as much as our culture tries to aff, like, affirm us, and it, and it does try, advertising, film, like, like inspirational social media posts, all of these things, it is still one of the most difficult things to believe about ourselves, that we are actually worthy of love. You see, there's a treasure trove of resources in the marketplace, on your, on the, like at the tips of your thumbs, to give us that sense of inner peace and well-being that we so desperately desire. So we can like pursue a new job. We could lose a few pounds. We could like finish our life plan. We could buy a house. We could like get into that school, et cetera, et cetera. We could do all of these things and strive and strive and strive. But if we're really honest, like what if we were really honest and when we went to that job interview or we went on that date, we, we said, you know, um, th- the reason I think I, I would actually... Um, be do a little bit more pay in this is because I'm looking for it to uh, fulfill some deep heart longings. I'm, I'm looking for it to actually, f- I want this to fill up to tell me that I'm worthy of love. Like what it, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't do that because we would feel so exposed, but it, I wonder if it would be freeing. You see, proving ourselves worthy of love is one of the greatest sources of angst and frustration. As most of us go along, we're like, we're, we're waiting for this mysterious moment of affirmation, whether it be from a, like a partner or, or whomever and a friend. And we're like, we're waiting and we're waiting and we do so. We, we do it on edge. Like we're irritable and we're anxious, we're lustful and we're angry and we're always like longing, but never really satisfied. But on the outside, if you're anything like me, like those are the things that are happening in here. I can't really, I'm still learning what it is to like deal with my emotions, but um, those are the things happening in here. But on the outside, I'm like as cool as a cucumber, I, which that's a weird statement. And I probably will never use that again. Uh, but, but on the outside, like I'm, I'm, the, I'm the picture of peace and calm, but on the inside, it's like a chaos. And that's, that's the thing about longing though, is it can be quite a, like a powerful motivator. Most people who you see who are successful actually have this like deep sense of longing just like, like nested in their heart. And like I, I think about the, um, as I was thinking about this, the, the comedian Robin Williams came to mind. And um, if you've seen his documentary, Come Inside My Mind, it's like this, it's, I don't even know, it, it's really sad. But in this, in this little documentary, he ends up saying that for stand-up, for him, like making people laugh, his, 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 it's not just something he does for fun, it's survival. Like it's how he feels alive and loved in the world. And so I just, I'm wondering like, like we have all the data about this. So how many documentaries like this do we need to watch? How many little studies do we need to see on the increase of loneliness? You know, like the, the growing edge of loneliness in our population are old men like above the age of 50, because there's no friends. So like, it's, it's just like, I don't know how long we need to keep reading these things before it's gonna click. That the deep call of our heart is to be loved. And I don't, I don't have an answer to that. But what I do know is that, is that what we really long for happens right here in Mark chapter one. It happens on the banks of the Jordan River all those years ago. 
So Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. And so he steps into the waters of the Jordan. He receives his baptism. And then we read these words in verse 10. Go there with me. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. See, in this very public and poetic moment, the father declares his love over and for his son. And, and Jesus, he's, he's given an identity in this moment that will shape the rest of his life. And so let me just, let me just ask to make sure that y'all are paying attention. What's Jesus done so far? Not rhetorical. What's he done? Thank you, Dan. Nothing. Jesus has done nothing. He's not cast out a single demon. He's not like taught with authority. He's not healed anyone. He's done nothing. Except for maybe like when he was 12, there was that moment in the temple that Luke talks about. But, but other than that little like flash in the pan, there's nothing. And yet in this moment, love and acceptance and identity are given to him as a gift from the Father. See, all of Jesus's ministry flows from this place of acceptance and love, not for it. We could say that same thing this way. Jesus lives from his belovedness, not for his belovedness. This is actually the invitation that we have, church, to live from our belovedness. No earning, no striving, just receiving. I know this is beautiful, right? Like we get in here and that would, that would be lovely. Um, but if Jesus is the end goal of the Christian life, and, and he is, it's not to, to like fly away, not to be evacuated from our circumstances, but it is to be with, to become like, to do what Jesus did. If Jesus is the end goal of the Christian life, then we need to pay attention to how it is that the Father affirms Jesus, how it is that the Father's love becomes real and known and actualized in Jesus's life. And so we ask this question, how did Jesus receive the love and affirmation of the Father. And maybe you saw this coming, but it is by the Holy Spirit. Just look again at, at verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, which epic scene, and then this, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. See, this is Mark's way of saying that all of this that is Jesus' identity as, beloved, as God's beloved son. This whole thing, it comes by way of the Spirit. The Spirit is the mediating presence of the Father's love and the one who empowers Jesus' very sonship. And, and maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, Kyle, that, I don't know, man, that seems a bit thin. If that's the case, uh, Apostle Paul for the win. Uh, Romans chapter 5. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hear that again. God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So how does God make his love known to us? How does God make his, his love like felt? How do we experience God's love by the Holy Spirit? It is the Spirit who mediates the love of God to us. And so now I, I, could, I could turn to any one of you and I could say this. I could say, God loves you. And I could, I could do so, and that would be true, but it wouldn't be the end. And here's, here's what I mean. I could say that God loves you, and you could go, thanks, I guess, thanks. Okay. I could say God loves you, and you could say, I don't know about that, bro. I could say God loves you and you could curse me because your life is a living hell right now. In fact, you look around in the world and you see no evidence of love. Nothing that lasts, nothing that's permanent. All of those are valid responses to this declaration that God loves you. You see, it may be true when I say it, and it may even make sense in your mind. Perhaps you've read the books. Maybe you've even read in, in this book, and so you, you know, you say, yes, I know that God sent his son to die for me. Even while I was this rebellious sinner, I was rejecting his love. Yes, he died for me. I get it. Leave me alone. But how do you, like, how do you know this? How do you know it in like the core of your being? How do you know it in your bones that God's love has been like declared over you? And that it's, it's like, how, how do you know it when you're like strangely warmed by his love? See, what, what we see in Mark is that God wants, to kn- wants us to know his love like that of a father or a mother for their child. It's this parental love. And I, I know that for, like, for many of us, like, just, to, just to hear like, something about our like, father and mother loving us is just like it comes with a lot of baggage, myself included. But, but you know, in this past season of life, I, I became a father. And that was weird in and of itself. Um, but all of a sudden, it, like, the birth of my son, like, birthed in me this, like, affection and depth of compassion I just didn't know existed in my life. And actually, here, here's my boy. Come on now. Like, you may not be able to tell. I took this picture on Friday. You may not be able to tell here. Um, but Griffin's, he's, like, been on the struggle bus. It's, it's, it's too cute. It's too cute. Aaron, take it down. Take it down. I can't. Just knowing you staring at me. Thank you. Okay. Um, see, see, these past couple of weeks, Griffin's actually been on the struggle bus. He's been, I don't know, whatever you all have had, he got, so thanks a lot. Um, no, but he's, he's had the, the, the fever, the cough, like, the, the, like all of the stuff. Um, and the waking up in the middle of the night, just kind of normal toddler stuff. But it provoked in me, like hearing him cry out in the middle of the night, just like provoked in me this swirl of emotions. And all of a sudden, like, like, I wish that I could just take it all into myself so that he would be well. And if you know me, and as you're getting to know me, you know that this is quite weird because I'm actually quite a selfish person. So it's like, I, where does this stuff come from? But just imagine this. This is, just, this is me and my boy. Broken that I am. But imagine this just multiplied by infinity. 
God's love for us, his affection, his commitment, his jealousy over us, like endless and without measure. And how does he do it? By the Spirit. And if, if you are still resisting that little piece, and the Apostle Paul wasn't a winner for you, uh, from the lips of Jesus, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, these two things might seem a bit disconnected, but they're closer than we think. See, God is the giver of good gifts. James will go on to say that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation due to, there's, there's no change in him. He is the giver of good gifts, and he pours his love out to us. How? Through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But why the Spirit? Like, why why do we even need the Spirit? Why, Why does the Spirit need to mediate God's love to us? Well, uh, it's actually because God's love is incompatible with us. And I I know that that might, maybe it comes as a shock to you, maybe it doesn't. You you know the the evil that rests in your own heart. Um, But in a time when, like, everybody gets a participation ribbon, and we grew up hearing, everyone's a child of God, um, and you grow up hearing, like, oh, you're loved, you're loved, and get all the affirmation in the world. But sadly, like, that's, that's not quite true. And don't mishear me. God desperately loves his creation, and especially the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. He desperately loves us. And our story, our story, it started in complete unity with God the Father, like abiding in the creator's love. And yet that space, that space of unity and love, it was vandalized. That peace that, that we'll hear called shalom, that it, it was vandalized. And that vandalism is called sin. And so when our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, like they entered into the vandalism of shalom, we picked up the mantle. And we ourselves enter in and are like co-vandals with them. And we stand accused in our sin. And our sin is really just any failure to reflect the image of God in nature, attitude, or action. This is why the Spirit is needed to mediate the love of God because it is incompatible with us rebels. And yet, God God wants, he wants us who bear his image. He wants us to be restored, to be renewed and to partner with him in the restoration of all things. And yet we've, we've taken this love that he extends and we turn it inward, we distort it. Like we, we don't understand the purposes of his love, but God's spirit, he takes these two like desperate entities. He takes these two things that just don't make sense and he brings them together. And he takes the love of God that perhaps you've heard about for decades now and in a moment, he makes it real. Just like one day it just clicks and you see that Jesus truly is love, and, and that the Holy and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that connection. And so, when the Father wanted to declare His affirmation and love and identity over His Son, He sent His Spirit, and He sent His Spirit to mediate this love over to and for His Son. And you think, how oh, this is a bit redundant? And there's a point here because this is one of the hardest things for us to receive. You see, before Jesus does anything. 
the Father says, I am pleased. I am well pleased with you. There's no earning. There's just receiving. And the Spirit is doing the same thing right now. What the Spirit does in us is the Spirit puts the cry of Abba, Father, of, of Daddy, of Papa. He pours it out into our hearts so that the hope of the good news of the gospel might like, take root in our lives and produce the fruit of the gospel, which is freedom. Because God's desire is for us to actually be and live as though we are free, not enslaved to sin. And so we just, we turn back with Paul because he, he hits this on the head in Galatians chapter four. We read this. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. See, it's the spirit who is the one who makes this confession real in us. And as I say that, Perhaps that statement feels vacant for you. Thinking like in my own journey, this has been and continues to be one of the most difficult things for me is to receive God as Father. Perhaps it, it, you know, it comes from like family of origin stuff. But, but this, this summer, as it, like, it came on like I'd never experienced it. And... Uh, Perhaps it was because you know, I'm like I'm unemployed, looking for a job, have a desire to, to, to preach and be in a local church, and yet like it's no, it's no, it's no, it's no. It's like, will I measure up? And it was like, I, I don't know how to explain it, and forgive me if this sounds weird to you, but this is just like experiential what was there. It's like I'm sitting in my like my mother and father-in-law's little den, and I'm like, and I'm I'm like, God, like should I even do this? And I don't, I don't know how to explain it except for it was like liquid love was poured into my heart and it was just like a hug like that would not let go. And I, I, it was as though like the statement of God, like you're approved. You don't have to do anything. And these words became like a salve to my soul. That I'm, I'm loved before I do anything in Christ. And yet, you know, what I've heard from most of my like, journey of following Jesus is that God's spirit is given to us, he's given to me, uh, so that when God looks, when the Father looks at me, he sees the Son. And listen, yes and amen. Yes and amen. That the spirit of God is given as a gift so that all who trust and receive in Jesus, they, they get the gift of his righteousness. His, his righteous record is given to us in Christ. That is absolutely true. But the Spirit does not erase you. Does not erase you. Doesn't erase me. It's because God actually loves distinctly. He loves you, and so he pours his Spirit out into your heart because he actually wants to see you restored and to participate with him in restoration, it is specific. And so he made a way through his spirit to be with you, to be for you, to be in you. And this is nothing new for God. If, if you turn to like, you know, like the first three quarters of your Bible, the part that we generally avoid, the Old Testament, uh, it, it's the same way with Israel. God dwelled with them in, in the temple and in the tabernacle before that. But God wasn't, he, he, nobody was chaining God to the temple or to the tabernacle. It was a gift of grace 
And grace is itself by its very nature a gift. God's presence was a gift to Israel. And so too with us. The Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts so that we can finally cry out, Abba, Father, I am beloved. I am a child of God. See, God, he wants to do this work of reconciliation in us, but first he needs to reconcile the reality that our image is marred. Our image only faintly reflects God's glory in creation. He's like a shadow in his own creation, and so God is intent to reconcile our image with our identity, and Jesus is the person in whom our image and our identity are reconciled so that we can actually cry out with confidence that we are children of God. And just to keep rolling with Paul because he's on it, uh, go with me to Romans chapter 8. This is what we read. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if you, if you just want to like take those few verses this next week and let it shape your whole world, it would do a thing. But, but two things from here that I want us to see. First, if you've been afraid, if you've been afraid as we've been talking about the Spirit, if you're, if you, if you're afraid that like if the Spirit comes, you're going to lose control or, or, or like it's going to get weird and stuff like that, like I, I pray right now, God, that you would dispel that fear, that you would cast that fear, because there's no fear in love and perfect love cast that fear. But God, like, um, fear is not rooted in the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the one through whom God pours His love out into our hearts, and, and that's the first thing I want us to hear. And second, like, we we can't but address the male language of sonship, just like in the time that we live in. And, and the realities of like the gross abuse that have taken place over these past couple of years and continue to, they're just being unearthed day after day. Um, for many of my sisters in here, like I, I imagine one of the, like the main challenges to following Jesus, and maybe I'm just making this up, but it is like the, the, maternal, or the, the paternal language, the, the maleness, the sonship language. And I, like I, I hear that. And so if I may, like... Um, present this to you. God is not trying to make you women and, women and girls. He's not trying to make women and girls into men and boys in the same way that God is not trying to make men and boys into women and girls in the bride of Christ. This is, this is language to help wrap our limited minds. You see, our, our, around an infinite God, you see, our language strains to conceive of a being like God, a being who's, who actually extends beyond gender. And so, so maybe this is weird, but, but God is spirit. God is not like a mashup of male and female all swirling around. God is spirit. He extends beyond that. And yet we attach language like father because it captures this parental love. 
And we can receive it as such because it's on Jesus' lips. And we can have confidence and trust that in Jesus' words. And yet when we see this language of, of sonship, it, it, it ought not make us shudder because um, the Apostle Paul is actually doing something quite scandalous. He is, in his day, usurping. He, he's subverting patriarchy in the day. And this is, this is going to be like one nerdy moment for us that I'm super excited about. Uh, see, this subversion of patriarchy, in this little passage, this, this adoption language here in Romans 8, it's all about status. So if, if you were the firstborn in the Roman home, you had all of the status. You were the natural heir by birth. And yet, um, that, that's unless the, the current head of the home, the patrifamilius, he thought that you were unfit for the role. And under Roman law, they could adopt another. They, they could adopt a cousin or a colleague or something to be, to receive all the status of the firstborn, to have all of the status of the firstborn transferred to the adopted son. And hear this, under Roman law, you could actually dismiss the biological son, but you cannot dismiss the adopted son. That was permanent. And what Paul is saying is that this is what's happening to us in and by and through the Spirit. We receive the status as the firstborn. And that's all of us. That's, that's male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Like at the foot of the cross, it's level. All receive the status of the firstborn. And so, so la- ladies, um, it would be a great dismissal of the power of this passage to say that you are daughters of God. Now that is, that is true, in your gender, and yet you are sons. You have received the sonship, which means that you are co-heirs with Christ, which means that me or any other dude in this room, we have no status above you. It's equal at the foot of the cross. And we praise God for that. This was 2,000 years ago, and we are still wrestling with this today. And yet we get, we get a chance to model this reality as we serve and love one another equitably. We don't elevate one person over and against another. No, we serve each other mutually. This is the gospel. This is like what the power of the gospel can do in a community. It can unleash the love of God because it's from a place of confidence that you now stand, approved of by the Father, having received the adoption of some. So you can cry out, Abba, Father, and you can say, I am a beloved son or daughter. That's the power of the gospel, church. You see, even that cry that I just cried out, that cry is scandalous. So if you have any Jewish friends and you've like seen them post on the social medias, uh, you might see how they write God. It looks like this. It's capital G hyphen D. Um, it's, it's because they don't want to say Yahweh. They don't even want to say Adonai, which is Lord. They, um, but it's for fear that we take the Lord's name in vain. And so what you would see is Orthodox Jewish people, they would um, use the language of Hashem, which just means the name. And so they would, they would go around saying Hashem, but then you get Jesus in the Gospels, stinking Jesus. Like Jesus just going around everywhere, talking intimately with God. He's talking about his father's house. He's talking about not doing anything outside of his father's will. It's daddy this, papa that. And it's everywhere. And it infuriates the religious leaders. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He has no reverence. This rabbi has no regard for Hashem. And yet Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he is a beloved son. 
he knows that he is well pleased before the Father. Because Jesus' whole life is from his belovedness. And Jesus, he doesn't want anybody to miss this point. And so to these religious leaders who would get kind of like uh, all, all up in a wad, they, he would, Jesus has these stories, these three consecutive parables. And in Luke 15, he actually wraps this, these, these parables up. They're kind of like um, the, the tension is raising. And we would know this story as, as the prodigal son. But it's a story about two boys, an older and a younger. And the younger son, he comes and he says to his father that he wants to share the inheritance which is essentially to say to his father, I wish you were dead. But the father goes, okay. And so he takes at great cost to himself. He takes and he gives, he liquidates his assets and he gives his inheritance to his younger son. And his younger son just goes, peace. You're dead to me. And he goes out and he squanders his inheritance in wild living. He does what any bitter son would do, enraged at, like, with, with daddy problems. Like, that's just what he does. He goes and he, he just squanders all the money. And then when he finds himself thinking, like the thing that he thinks will bring him freedom actually finds him at the end of his rope and he is like in a pig pen, which is not kosher, literally not kosher for him. He starts to craft this little speech in his mind. He starts thinking, you know, I would, be, I would be better off just being a servant in my father's home. So he gets up the gumption and he departs and he starts heading home. And he's rehearsing this, this speech. He's gonna tell his father, like, I, I know I've done this, but okay. He's getting closer. And, and far off, the, the, like the father sees him, which, which that d- little detail right there, like was the father looking day in and day out, just scanning the horizon for his son? The father sees him, and he knows, he like knows how his, how his boy carries himself. And so he sees him, and he just books it, just makes a beeline for him, and he's running. And if, and if like, if you just imagine, put, put yourself in the story. You're the son. You've squandered your inheritance, and you're coming back on the horizon. You're dead to this man. I'd be thinking, oh, he's pissed. I, I would be ra- w- like waiting for like the wrath of God to be poured out on me in that moment. And I'm just like, hopefully he'll receive my speech. And so this is what happened. Like the father sees him and like he, he just full throttle embraces him. And the son like is trying to get his speech. And he's like, dad, I know that I did the thing with the stuff. And it's like, and then the father's just like, shh, 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 shh. and he embraces him. He says, get the robe, get, get the ring. Where's the fat calf? Get the calf, kill it. We're gonna party. See, when Jesus is trying to get a point, the reality of his belovedness, he tells this story to say this is the Father's love for those of us who are far off, those who count ourselves as rebels and celebrate it, those who move the ropes to sit in different spots. <laughs> you see, but the, the, story, the, the story doesn't end there because they, they actually do the party. And then the older brother catches wind. The, older, the other brother, he hears that his, his younger brother's back, the one who stole his inheritance. And he's livid. He won't even go into the party. But the father, 
notices he's not there. And so the father leaves the celebration to go out to the older brother to meet him, to invite him in. And the older brother just lays into his dad. And all of the pent-up bitterness, in, it just vents. And the father, he like takes it. He says, all I've ever had is yours. It's been yours the whole time. It's always been yours. Come, come. So he, hear this, Gateway. To the rebel and to the bitter, the father says, come. I'm up here saying, like, repent and turn away from your sins. And the father in the parable is just saying, survive. The father is going to receive you. This is the scandalous love of the father. This is the love that's being poured out into our hearts through the spirit. So what, what is it? Like, what could it be? that allowed that father in that story to extend grace? Well, there's children. There's children. See, wherever we are in this season of life, if you are in Christ, Paul's saying Colossians, that you are hidden with Christ in the heavenly places, that you, you, are, you are seated with him in a place of security and righteousness. You are there looking down on your circumstances. You're not stuck in your condition. You, you, you are positionally with and in Christ. If you are there, then you have the cry of Abba, Father. Like our, our identity is our access. And that identity is, is one of adopted sons. And that is mediated to us by the Spirit. And the Spirit says to us that the Father's love is ours. Not because of the striving that we continue to do. Not because of the energy and the effort. But the Father's love is ours because we are our, his beloved. This isn't something that'll come. Like, I, like I, th There's no turn of phrase that's gonna turn this or activate this reality in your life. It's not gonna be the laying on of hands. It's not gonna be a powerful prayer. It's not gonna be like some manifestation of the spirit. It is the spirit himself mediating the love of God into your heart. That's when it clicks and that love becomes real. And yet this continues to be like one of the greatest challenges to say that we are worthy of love. See, there's a, a great thinker, theologian, um, I, like I love his work, his name's Henry Nouwen, he, he, he says this, he says, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? See, this, the love of God is hard to believe, but it is even harder to receive. Um, we, we talked about this like one of my first weeks here, we talked about the need to be vulnerable. Uh, how many of you, by show of hands, like to be vulnerable? Yeah. It's because it's hard. By the way, in case you, you can't see, nobody raised their hand. <laughs> see, but this is why we come across passages that say God loved so much. He loved the world so much that he sent his son. He sent his son to be 
for us and to us and with us to be who we perpetually fail to be so that we could be his righteousness, so that we could receive his love. This is the father that is calling out to us. And I don't know, maybe, maybe this is resonating with you at like a guttural level. And you're like, yes, yes, yeah, yes. Like I, I know I am a fervent. I know this, I know this is true. Then this next week, like my, this is my invitation to you. Live into it. Live into it with confidence. Like, pr- pray the scary prayers. <laughs> like, like, the prayers that are like, God, God would, you, would you refine me? Would you refine me and lead me into home? Like, pray those scary prayers. Maybe it's like you say, like, yes, out of this position, I just want to be with you. Maybe, maybe you say, you know, I'm actually going to, like, get up when I say I'm going to get up, and I'm just going to spend time with you. I'm just going to sit. Like, there's, no, there's moments with Griffin, I don't just say anything, and he's just, like, playing with his toys, just doing something, and it is like, <sighs> just to be with him. And every once in a while, he'll turn around and he'll look at me just to know that I'm there. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close. Um, the evidence is here. The evidence is here. God wants to, in his son, reconcile your image and your identity. The invitation is for you who are far off and you who are near to be and live into the reality of being children of God. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.